for the most part, when we decide to stop playing a sport, whether that be cricket, football, rugby or anything else, the decision is made by you as the individual. You're fed up with it. You realise your bones aren't quite as durable as they used to be or whatever it is. But what we're going to talk about today is when that's enforced on someone and the sport that you've loved ever since you're able to walk really is no longer something that you can compete in on the field. So I've got with me uh, an old friend, Adam Canning today, to talk about that as well as a couple of other little bits that um, might be surprising towards the end. So first off, thanks for having me around today. Thanks for having me, Boynesy. Happy to be here. Good stuff. So we've got a little bit of... um a theme over some of these last um, uh, last podcasts where we had Danny Dodds, uh, you'd have come across o- over the years, yeah. and when he was talking about talent identification uh, in football where he works, and what that you two have in common, apart from being uh, my friend in an unfortunate uh, turn of events for you, is that um, the way the way you got to in terms of your sporting career was via a fairly uh, circuitous route. So it wasn't just a smooth <clears throat> path through the kind of academies and things like that that we might um, often speak to people about. So what we'll say before we go, go into talking about um, the, the kind of end that this is really about is you've played both played rugby union as a recreational player as well as having gone uh, abroad to play professionally. What is the big difference when you're playing the sport, not the preparation, what's the big difference when you're actually out there playing professionally compared to recreationally? Um, I, I think the main thing for me that I, I noticed and, and felt was the the pressure of um, the fact that you're being paid to play, it does matter, your performance does matter. So you can go out there and play for your local rugby club on a Saturday have some fun with your mates, you may or may not play well, you may or may not win and you'll have a laugh in the bar afterwards no matter what. Whereas when you're being paid to play and when there's fans that are actually paying their hard-earned money to watch you play, you do feel that added sense of pressure to perform. And in in the environment that I was playing in in Spain, the squad was um, made up of a mix of paid professionals and local semi-professionals or even amateurs that made up the rest of the squad so for me the pressure was even higher to perform because you felt like if you were one of the players being played um, and there was sort of seven or eight of you the pressure was on to perform um, and it did matter and if, if you didn't play well you felt like you'd let people down you felt like people would be talking about you potentially a waste of money or potentially a waste of their hard and money coming to watch so it, it's just the pressure of performing which either inspires you or or can damage your confidence as yeah. well. Okay, and with your position as a as a as a fly half, I'm responsible for a lot of the team's points, whether you actually get them or whether you don't. Yeah. If we draw say a parallel in in cricket, where we've got a a team game made up of a set of individuals, and at, at any given point there will be the focus on on one individual, whether it's a bowler or a batter within your team. I suppose the, the position that you played your rugby in is the most similar to that in that there will be spotlight dropped on you yeah. at particular times. So I think what I would look at from, from the outside is saying that you're judged on statistics um, considerably more than some of your, your teammates might yeah. be. Yeah, I think so. I think definitely externally, 
Um, you are judged by the points you, you get and your kick conversion rate and, and obviously how you play on a Saturday. Um, but internally within the squad, it's, it's very different. So the stats that you might look at as a squad when you review the game on the Monday or the Tuesday after a, after a Saturday are definitely not the kicker's percentage rate. So I've come off the pitch a few times having scored 20, 30 points thinking on uh, the dog's bollocks and, and getting to the video review on Monday and I've actually missed four or five tackles. Um, I've done quite a few things wrong defensively and probably made a few bad decisions and you brought back down to earth quite quickly by the coach. So, uh, But the fans that came and watched on that Saturday will probably think you're man of the match because you kicked eight for mate. So... There's, I think there's an external uh, perspective and an internal perspective and as you get up the high levels and, and you do more things like video analysis and you do more self-reflection on your performance, uh, you do realise that it's actually your teammates' respect that, that's more important than uh, the, the fans that come and watch on a Saturday. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. So your, your, your transition then going over to, to play in Spain and then come back over, over here afterwards... Um, you weren't necessarily when you were uh, at school someone that would have been in in the mix for that would that be fair to yeah, say yeah i think rugby's modern day rugby is very much um physical sport i don't think physically i, I developed as early as some players do now that get gets into academies at the age of 14 15 16 when i was when i was 18 19 20 i was probably 12 12 13 stone and i needed to be closer to 15 stone if I wanted to play at a, a semi-professional or professional level. So, you know, I think um, skill-wise I, I was there or thereabouts but needed to work really hard um, to fight genetics really and, and put some weight on and, and work on my strength and conditioning um, in order to, to work my way up the leagues a little bit. Yeah, so you had your local club, uh, Old Lamingtonians, and then from there that was via two other teams, wasn't it? To Kenilworth and then off to Kenilworth Rugby Lions? Rugby Lions, yeah. yeah. So uh, for people listening who maybe aren't familiar with how like the, the, the leagues work in rugby union, club cricket's quite odd in comparing to other sports in that you reach a ceiling where then you go into minor counties or professional, whereas there's the potential in rugby union like there is in, um, in football for teams to go through that, that pyramid like Worcester did, didn't yeah. they? So... For you, each of those times, you were moving up stages along there. Yeah. How did you get in the position, playing uh, there at, at rugby, to go to have an opportunity to make it your living abroad? So um, I was lucky enough to be involved at Rugby Lions the season where there was a, a quite infamous now um, takeover or failed takeover, as it's ended up being, um, from a a millionaire or so-called millionaire businessman that wanted to buy Rugby Lions, being the home of rugby, obviously being the home of the sport. And he came up with a five-year plan to take the club up through the leagues to the, to the premiership. So he had quite ambitious plans. He signed a load of players from local leagues, but also bolstered the squad with ex-premiership players. So he was signing players that are just um, working their way down from the premiership, championship. And um, famously, he appointed Neil Back, ex-England uh, World Cup winner and he was a premiership coach at the time he appointed Neil back to be the coach of that team so the plan was to win the league that season in a semi-professional environment which we did with ease winning every week sort of 50 or 60 nil and then the following year uh, go fully professional so 
personally, I I was really enthused and excited to be part of that project. I was part of that league winning squad in a, in a, from a semi-professional perspective. And then at the end of the season was offered the opportunity to, to go full time and make it, make it my profession the following year. Um, Sadly, that that didn't conspire because the money didn't materialise and it became a, a bit of a sham takeover in the end. And to cut a long story short, all the all the squad ended up leaving. There was no money um, exchange hands. Neil Back left the club. Um, the high profile players left the club, and the RFU placed the club into administration essentially. And uh, they they ended up at the bottom of the rugby tiers again. So having psychologically um, built myself up for. The opportunity of playing professionally, I, I just and and quitting my job, I I just couldn't mentally bring myself to see that um, sort of enterprise as being a failed one. So I I went out my way then to try and get a professional contract elsewhere. Um, you know, made a highlights video, did did all of the things that aspiring rugby players would do. Contacted agents, um, and after a few few months of um, having my my network out there looking for a club for me an opportunity came up in Spain in, in Barcelona which was uh, really exciting um, obviously didn't know much about the standard of rugby out there but um, it ended up being being very good and it was an opportunity that I I knew I didn't want to um, miss out on yeah so there's a lot of risk in in that endeavor but I think anyone who who plays sport at whatever standard if you've got an opportunity to to test yourself and to move on to a, a standard above, there is always an element of risk in that. If you've got amateur cricket players who are looking to maybe move to another club because there's the chance to play against better players or to have um, rewards in, in another way, we can see that. In this case, it's the ex- quite extreme to be thinking about t- moving away from fairly secure employment in a in industries where you do have things like a certain amount of holidays assured, yeah. you get a salary and all of that. So okay, you'd set yourself up to, to go and make sure that you were gonna grab that chance and go abroad where you don't speak the language, where you're unsure of the standard, who you're gonna be playing with and, and so on and so forth. So you had your time there, um when you came back to the to the country, just briefly take us through what you did when you returned from Barcelona. Yeah, so when when I came home, I had the opportunity to stay on for another year, but for for different personal and family reasons, I wanted to to come back and and, and play in England. Um, so I had the opportunity to play at, at Birmingham Solihull, um, which was uh, great for me. Um, a great environment, great club, famous famous club in England with with a great history and um, local local to me and my family as well. So it it just worked worked well for me. Um, and it was a place probably where, apart from my my junior amateur club in where I grew up, it was, it was a place where I felt most at home. had 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 a lot in common with the lads there, and um, really enjoyed my rugby for a couple of years. Okay, yeah, uh, and from there, you the, the bit that we're kind of moving towards here is when you went on to 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 Coventry. Now, of course, however much the name of Boom, Solihull would ring out in, in rugby union circles. Coventry, you go back to a time in the 1970s where there was up to a quarter of the England team uh, ha- um, hailing from there. People think about Priest, Duck and Rossborough, etc. A city that 
has had its challenges, but it is really rooted in a rugby culture. And we don't need to go into what's happening now with Wasps being in the city, but it's certainly somewhere where there's a real interest in it. So for, for, for that, you get there at what age? Um, I was 26, I think, or 27 when I signed for Coventry. So as someone who... In terms of your progression, it being relatively late, like you yeah. said, with terms of like getting to grips with the physicality, you've arrived there in what is generally in in sport people's prime, that yeah. mid to late twenties, at a club which has got uh, a historic reputation. Oh no, there's been difficulties over quite a, quite a few years, but you've reached there with a chance to to, to really kick on. What was the experience? like there leading up to to the to the point where you, you had the injury um yeah i mean signing for coventry was it had been a an ambition of mine throughout my career really i'd always wanted to sign for coventry like you said it's the, it's the big club in the midlands it's got historic rugby club huge huge support very ambitious and lo- local local to me as well so i'd always wanted to make it at coventry and i always thought like I had the the potential to do so, so when I signed for them, it was it was big for me. Um, but signing means nothing. You want to go on and and be remembered for doing a good job there, playing well, and and being somebody that makes an impact on the pitch. Um, I'd just come off my best ever season at Bees, which was the season that earned me the the contract at Cov. I was fittest I'd ever been, the strongest I'd ever been, and and probably the happiest I'd ever been, both in terms of life and also my my rugby career. So I was absolutely flying into that season. Um, had a great pre-season, felt really good, felt really fit, and was really excited about the challenge of the pre-season fixtures that we had against London Welsh. You had a couple of uh, ex-international players, um, and Ealing, and and I was. Um, Really excited to make an impact. Yeah, okay. So, you've had all this build-up where, in to one extent or another, everything's been leading to this path. Something you've, you've worked so hard on as a mixture of it being, you've been a very thoroughly committed amateur as well as then having a the professional experience. You ended up having an injury which then dominated not just your experience of of the sport but it impacted every area of your of your life for a long time afterwards just if you can explain what happened in that very first instance when you were first sidelined with the injury um yeah so um i suffered a bad concussion in a pre-season game against ealing um it was the last minute of the game i was in a ruck which was uh, not not common for me uh, <laughs> so i was getting stuck in probably where I shouldn't have been, trying to do things I probably shouldn't have been doing, but um, trying to make an impact, like I said, and I think it was it was a cheap shot. Um, my head was sticking outside of the ruck and, and somebody lined me up and basically clotheslined me. Um, my arms were stuck in the ruck, so there was no, nowhere to take impact. I was knocked out quite badly, um, and then uh, from there, the next two, three, four weeks were just a complete comedy of errors in terms of the recovery, um, and it led to a, a gradual, slow decline of my 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 health really, which which lasted a long time. So when we see, like I think even today we've got the uh, rugby World Cup on, and uh, 
there was a, a, a small incident in the, the game previous Wales against France where there was perhaps a, a, a doubt that there might have been a, a head injury for someone. And in the commentary, we're quite used now to saying if there's a head injury, then there's a protocol to follow and there's suspicions people can go off, they can have a replacement and so on. It seems to be something that is taken pretty seriously. But I must say, often the perception is that those things are put in place. I mean, it was Steve Smith, didn't we, in the Ashes. And people anticipate, when they think of concussion, that you've had a knock on the head, you need a bit of a sit down, and then you'd be fine to go on again. And that really, uh, it, that's, that sounds a very ignorant uh, thing to say, knowing what's ha- what happened to you. But I'd imagine that is something that's quite, quite a commonly held view, that it's something yeah. that you just kind of shake off as if it's um, a, a knock on another yeah. part of your body rather than anything serious. So... What happened in the, the intervening time? When that happened, how long did you expect this would keep you out for? Well, I think it, if I'd have got the same injury today, four or five years later, I would have known how to manage it. There's a lot more awareness in the game, in the sport, the RFU doing a lot more. But this was this was five years ago now, and I I was probably in a bit of denial that I had been concussed. I was desperate to play in the first league game the following week, so... Rather than having uh, what is now mandatory two weeks of complete rest, I was at training on Monday going through extensive extensive fitness work to try and prove that I was ready and available for, for the following Saturday. It wasn't until I finished that running session that I realised something was not right. Um, and the, the the physio probably didn't diagnose me, hadn't hadn't seen the video footage of me trying to get up um, from the floor, being very wobbly. Um, and so nobody really properly diagnosed it as a full-on concussion until a week, two weeks later, I was still having symptoms. Um, and the symptoms, rather than improving, um, got worse and worse. And it was probably, in the end, <laughs> seven or eight months before I was even exercising again, let alone taking to a rugby pitch to to play a physical sport. What are the what were those symptoms like then? So let's say you're trying to do uh, something on the treadmill or the bike, yeah. I mean, non-contact. What symptoms arose from from that? A- anything that raised the blood pressure, um, or got the heart pumping, or got the adrenaline pumping. Anything like cycling, or even trying to jog, or even a little a little jog up the stairs anything that really sort of pushed blood to the brain um, just led to some very strange and hard to describe symptoms, uh, fuzziness in the head, throbbing of the head, and a complete intolerance to, to any any exercise developed. So, you know, I, I, would, I would have to go and lie down in a dark room. I, um, I had sensitivity to light, sensitivity to noise, um, I couldn't put my head below sort of forty five degrees, so any sort of lying down, I'd have to have the pillow higher than my heart. Anything very hard to describe, really. Um, and obviously, from then not being able to exercise and not be able to play rugby and not be able to do all of the things, even work in an office, do all of the things that I'd become so used to doing, led to then probably some some mental symptoms where I really suffered with not being the person who I'd been previously. Yeah, because your identity is is bound up in what you yeah. what you do, isn't exactly. it? So, what kind of things then are are going through your through your head when you're continuing to struggle with this? Because 
it, maybe this is too simplistic, but if you're frustrated by being out because of a, an injury um, on an external part of your body, you say your, your, your ankle, your, your knee, you're able to see why that isn't recovering, that you, you, you can understand that it needs this time and you've yeah. got a bit more of a point of reference with other players. Yeah. How, how hard is it to deal with something where, like you've, you've done a really good job actually of explaining those symptoms, but if it's hard to explain to people what the impact of this is, something that's happened weeks and months before, yeah. how difficult is that to deal with? It, impossible. Um, I found it impossible to deal with, if I'm honest. There's no diagnosis, there's no prognosis, there's no rehab, there's no massage, there's no taping, there's no physiotherapy. There's no way back, really, other than time. And one thing I've come to learn is that still nobody knows what's going on with these brain injuries. People are still guessing. The brain is so complex that even the best experts in this country still do not know how to diagnose what's going on with these severe concussions. So... I found that really difficult, you know, if you snap your Achilles and somebody says, right, it's 12 months rehab, you've got to have this operation, you've got to do these exercises, after six months you can run, after nine months you can sprint, etc. You can get your head around that and you can start working out when you're going to be back on the pitch and working back from that moment. When it's an endless diagnosis with no end in sight and actually your symptoms are deteriorating, um, it's very difficult, um, especially when, like you say, other people don't understand it. So other people can't really sympathise or empathise with you. Um, They can see you're struggling, they can see you're not not making it up, but no one can help. Nobody can help you, nobody can say the right thing. Um, And, you know, I I, I definitely suffered suffered mentally and um, probably became a shadow of the person I was before the injury for... For a good year or so. Yeah. At what point did you... Now, of course, this thing about re- retirement or, or finishing sport, like I said at the beginning, for a lot of cases, that will either be someone makes that decision themselves because they feel a set of circumstances have created that light. They would just say, for, for a cricketer, for example, there's a batter, they're right, they've faced a, a quick bowler and they don't really see it as well and they think, right, my eyes are gone. Or it might be that yeah. someone from a health perspective says your knee or what have you just won't stand up to it and you realise yourself and it's kind of a two-way decision. For this, as you've said, there's not a lot of understanding about the brain injuries um, in general. So for you in particular then, that, that transfers. So it's all on you to make that decision, yeah. isn't it? Because yeah. the, as much as a coach or, or someone might might want to say, well, who knows, in the future this might be fine it's it's down to you when did you make that decision that you couldn't come back so after about 12 months after the original injury I tried to get back to back to rugby Coventry uh, were great and said they'd give me another opportunity for the next season um, an opportunity to earn my prove my fitness and, and earn another contract for the following year so I was involved in a bit of pre-season training working back very gradually running um, before then starting to to try a bit of the contact stuff, a bit of tacking on the bags and things. And as soon as I started having some impact through the body, started trying to make a few tackles, started started uh, getting shaken about a bit, the, all of the, not all of the symptoms, but all of the sensitivity and all of the awareness from the original injury came back. And um, I started to, to get symptoms again. It was the morning after a physical session. I woke up, 
my head was fizzy, uh, fuzzy, I was dizzy. I had a exercise intolerance again for two or three weeks, so I couldn't go to the gym, I couldn't work out. And I just knew then there's no way back for me in terms of playing rugby. I've proven to myself that there is a way back for me in terms of having some general health and being able to live a fulfilling life again in terms of being able to exercise and socialise and do the things I'd missed out on for a year or so. But um, probably rugby and, and still to this day, I know it was the right decision because I can just bang my head on the top of a door, walking out of a door frame and I'll have symptoms for a couple of days. It's so sensitive, it's so fragile in there that... Um, it was never a question of, is this the right decision? It's something that I physically can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. The very beginning of that time of, of being injured, on your reflection, you look back and say you rushed into it too quickly. So your your desire to play rugby kind of trumped anything else. Yeah. And now at the other end of it, you're able to see in a much broader context that, that what the benefits are of of retiring even yeah. though there'd be overwhelming feelings of regret and unfulfillment that actually being able to do things that we take for granted like getting something out of going to the gym or yeah. being able to be a bit more yourself for not being dominated by this thing defining you um two things come to mind though with that 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 type of retirement or having to leave something we get this whether it's an injury or someone's uh, perhaps made redundant from something they have a, a, a relationship breakdown the thing that's really tough to deal with is that how much of it is out of your control and that it's it feels unfair yeah because all the work that you'd put in from a very young age from say being at even the time say being at sixth form where you had to play in a in a rugby team where there'd be maybe two or three other people who were able to spell rugby never mind play it um and working on that all the way through to to the to the place where you were getting paid to do that and that was your job and that was your sole focus um how does that get reconciled? Because it must be must be tempting now to look back and think about it being unfair and yeah. why you? Yeah, definitely. That you took the words out of my mouth about it. Why me? Um, I I did feel that I I I worked really hard to get to where I'd got to in the game. I I was very committed on and off the pitch with my fitness, my training, my nutrition. My kicking practice, I always felt like I wanted to wanted to be that player that had no excuses on a Saturday. And so when it is you that then gets this sort of quite unique and life-defining, career-defining injury, you do feel sorry for yourself. You do wonder, why me? And it is difficult to shake those thoughts off for a long time. But as you, as you grow through the injury and you realise there is life after rugby and you, you realise that, um, there's a lot worse problems in this world and a lot a lot of people go through a lot of tougher times than, than having to retire from rugby. You do start to gain some perspective. You do realise life's tough. Um, it's a roller coaster, it's a ride and you, you, you have to make the best of the cars that you dealt. So um, it, it, was a, it was a growth process for me, really. I definitely did have that perspective at the start, um, but I've grown into realising that, yeah, life isn't fair. And you have to you have to make the best of, best of that. Um, so I'm, I wouldn't say I'm over it now. <laughs> I do still miss playing all the time. But in terms of the feeling sorry for myself, that's definitely not not a feeling I have anymore. Mm. And is there anything in particular that you have done that's helped you be able to get into what I would say is a is a pretty remarkable mindset? Because you think of how many people we hear of 
who were almost if onlys. You know, they're talking about, well, I, I had this, I had that, and I would have done this if it wasn't for this. Your outlook is pretty refreshing in that, yes, it did happen, but we're now on to the, the next bit. Was there anything that you consciously did to be able to get you to think like that? Um, I'm not sure there was anything conscious. I think it was it happened over time, to be honest. Um, I had a year away from the game where I felt quite isolated. Um, you're used to being in the environment of being with the lads every you know, all the time in the squad, having the camaraderie of being a player, you, you, the highs and lows of being together. And rather than staying around the game, the first year of retirement, I I did other things. I I went and watched football. I I I kept Saturdays to myself, and it was a pretty lonely time to be honest. So I realised that I needed to get back involved with the sport, um, and I I took up coaching. So I found a new new perspective, new perspective with rugby and a new focus um, that sort of switches switches the mentality. Right, this is the next job now. Let's see how good how good we can be at this job. Let's try and work our way up the leagues in this job. Let's try and have some success in this job. Um, playing is playing is over. There's no point lo- looking back on that. Let Let's look forward rather than look back. Mm. Yeah, accepting the situation is 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 crucial. Everyone's got their ways of trying to achieve that. But yeah, for all the mental skills that we talk about with opening up or wherever else, something that is an is essential is that patience. Not expecting something overnight, whether it's good or whether it's bad, um, and just having that little bit of trust, which you, you clearly have. So uh, you're now in coaching. If we take it back to the very first thing that we spoke about when you were saying about the difference between playing recreationally and playing professionally about that pressure and, and, and how that affects enjoyment what kind of how do you find a balance for your players so the lads who, who you've got there at, at Old Lemontonians um, play rugby for for the enjoyment but they do work hard in terms of they'll have their, their sessions with you during the week they've got uh, access to the coaches they've got access to their their training facilities but you'll be looking at it knowing your um your kind of personality that you're wanting to push them to improve that you don't want them just to turn up just to enjoy it because you enjoy it more when you win yeah but there is a balance that they'll be thinking well flipping out you know i've just got off work you yeah. know or maybe i'm giving up something else to be here how do you in terms of a coaching philosophy find a way of reaching that balance yeah, that that is difficult, um, but I think the fact that I've played at that same level uh, gives me the empathy of the fact that yeah, you, they have come from work and they might miss the odd training session and they have got family lives and they have just had a baby and, and things like that, which are no excuses at the professional level. So I'd like to think I am improving with the empathy of that, but you're right in that you know, if you're going to turn up twice a week to train, you may as well give it your all, you may as well try and improve, and you do enjoy it more if you're winning. So it's trying to trying to get that balance of getting the lads to understand that look we're only here for a couple of hours a week together let's switch on let's make the most of our time together, and also obviously trying to build in to the planning of your session some enjoyment some fun it's got to be fun uh, they're not being paid to be there um, but it's also the balance of the fun comes on a Saturday when when you win and you have a disco together in the clubhouse after yeah um, so you know I'm I'm learning all the time. I'm developing as a coach all the time, so I'm probably not quite there yet. Um, you'd have to ask the players whether I've got that balance right. But I want, I, for me, I see the potential of the players and how much they've developed already in the couple of years that I've been involved with them. And I just want them to have the success that they can 
they could achieve and that they they do deserve because they do work hard so it's just trying to help them realize their potential really for their own benefit rather than mine it's you know they can create some great memories together and I do remind them quite often that this could be your last ever game of rugby you know make sure you enjoy your health and your opportunity to play the sport that you love whilst you've got it because it could end any moment now and I hope that does resonate with some of the lads and uh, when I do talk about that because they, they see my perspective and you know I have to often say things like look this time next year you could be like me just putting the cones out get enjoy it um so yeah it's it's an ever-evolving process really of learning how best to work with the players and get the best of them yeah yeah spot on and one of one of the coaches that I've spoken to in uh in, in recent years said a great line I always remember that if, the best way to find resilience in, in a sport is the enjoyment of it. Yeah. You want to keep coming back because you like playing rugby or you like playing cricket. Um, so, yeah, you, you get that across. Now, two last things. With the different coaches that you've worked with over the years, say, no, say Neil Back as an example, um, what is it that... Because that translation between someone being a fantastic player, World Cup winner, uh, world-renowned player... That doesn't automatically make you. It's a different skill set to being then a good coach. Yeah. What is it that that someone like Neil could could do to be able to to get a, you as a player to improve um, from his instruction? Yeah, I think in a, in a sport like rugby, there's quite a lot of um, technical aspects. So one thing I've noticed from a coaching perspective or when I was a player working with good coaches was was detail so looking at the finer details of how you might tackle or how you might pass or how you might set up defensively and breaking that down through video analysis and spending some time really going into the detail that balance is really difficult to strike when you're in the amateur game and you don't get that much time with the players Um, but importantly for me as well when I was a player was just my management wanting to do well for that coach wanting to succeed for that coach and wanting to earn that coach's respect obviously Neil Back was a World Cup winner um, a legend of the game you don't want to let him down you don't want him to think you're a shit house. you want to make your tackles you want to work hard you want to prove that he's made the right selection and putting you in the team I've worked with a couple of coaches that I didn't get on so well with and I didn't feel like trusted me um uh, and that does impact you it does make you doubt your decision making it does make you um, execute your skills with a bit less certainty because you're thinking what would the coach think if this goes wrong whereas if, if you know the coach backs you whether you get it right or wrong and um, they believe in you to to play well over the course of a season or over 80 minutes you have you have got a bit more confidence then to do the things that make you the player you are so for me it's detail um, looking at the detail of technicalities, but also uh, man management is massive. Mm, yeah, and you see that, don't you? Loads of examples. I was listening to another podcast the other day where a player was talking about in the world of football a, a guy, who, a manager who had every attribute as a player, but just with man management, the players then would feel really flat. They yeah. feel like yeah, they weren't trusted, that they weren't given responsibility to to do things yeah so we get a few coaches listening to this podcast so I think there's quite a bit there for people to think about again do they display to players that they trust them 
because it's very we doubt ourselves all the time if we then feel someone else is doubting us that's going to multiply and you're not going to get the best out of a player so that's really useful now um the part of what you do now outside of rugby is working for the barmy army yeah um so in terms of that one thing that i'd always wanted to try and and we'll chat about this at, at, at other occasions is you mentioned in terms of rugby getting back into coaching was to do with that environment and being around like-minded people um and that's given you this kind of new lease of life and new goals and ambitions sport that sport gives that to people uh, every single uh, every single region of it whether it's you playing whether you're coaching you're officiating you're supporting you're just involved in that environment barmy army is clearly a like a very wide scaled example of that yeah. Uh, with how many members there are and, and going off overseas and, and at home and so on. So what is it about the, the Barmy Army and, and groups like that that do that what do they how do they use sport to be able to create that community that people want to be a part of? Yeah, um really good question. Obviously the, the Barmy Army is a world renowned England cricket supporters club, but very much more a community as well. So the Barmy Army represent um, unconditional support, um, obviously all-inclusive, no matter where you're from, no matter your, your colour, your background, your credence. And it is, it is a massive community and it's, you can meet like-minded people, you can travel with them, you can watch cricket, you can enjoy good times, bad times together. And it's where people make friends for life. Um, so it, it is very much like being part of a sports team. You, you're part of a sports community that do things together, you win together, you lose together, you have good times together, you have bad times together, but you stay together uh, and you keep moving forward. And it's, it, is a, it is a great um, company and great um, initiative to be involved with. Yeah, um, just the final bit. I think people perhaps have a misperception of what the, the Barmy Army is. They might have images of kind of people who've enjoyed a few drinks across the day, maybe verging on being a little bit more rowdy and like away from like your traditional cricket fan. Um, would it be fair to say that that's inaccurate? Yeah, the the Barmy Army is, we've got such a wide range in membership. We've got fans that will travel all around the world on every tour watching England. We've got cricket purists that take their scorebook and, and, and mark up the scores as, as the day goes on. We've got Friends that go together, families that go together, couples that go together, uh, individuals that go together, home and away, um, young kids that will come and sit with the Barmy Army and have some fun. It's definitely um, a misconception to think that it's just 40 or 50 rowdy blokes drinking lager and singing songs. Um, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a massive community of cricket-loving um, supporters who have great times together on and off the pitch, but um, support in the right way respect the opposition you know there's a massive misconception throughout the summer which really got on our nerves about the booing of the Australian players and Steve Smith we were very anti that as an organisation um, obviously some of our members were booing you can't stop people booing but as the Barmy Army we thought you know that's not cricket and we, we can have some fun with it in, in a more um, probably more intelligent way and yeah. have a bit more uh, creativity around some, some songs and some fun and Cricket is a great sport and, and the spirit of cricket should always be upheld. And I think Barmy Army, win, lose or draw, will we'll try and make sure that that's the case. Spot on, yeah. So we've had a bit of a, 
a tour through some very different areas of, of sport there, finishing up with the, the Barmy Army, um, but having gone through your journey in terms of those elements of, of, of reaching where you wanted to be in rugby, what you'd worked really hard with, and then the, the, the process of coming to terms with having to, to leave that. So for me, that's been really illuminating. Obviously, I knew a lot of this stuff anyway, but hearing it back does make me think a, a, a little bit about how we approach sport and how even when something does seem to be the be-all and end-all, things move on, life changes, and something else appears from there yeah. if, you, if you're patient. So thanks very much for joining me. Thanks for having me, mate. Spot on. Cheers.